Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome, or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. Genesis 2, 1 to 3 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Uh, I want to welcome you along this evening. If this is your first time, it's great to have you with us. Um, yeah, we're a lovely bunch, you know, as you can tell from Fraser's rather infectious uh, notices and, and sharing of joys and concerns. Uh, we just love doing this community thing and we love being together. Um, but we have been on a journey uh, these past few weeks uh, working through this whole series, Catching Breath. Um, and the purpose of that series has been to sort of reframe and redefine and rediscover what certain spiritual disciplines look like in our life. And we've been digging into the sort of history of the church, looking at things that really have been around um, sort of as far back as we have recorded um, and just looking at what those things might look like within our current uh, cultural context. Um, we've been speaking uh, sort of explicitly to some of the cultural anxiety and the stresses that, and the busyness that we tend to see around us. Um, and so uh, this evening, we're going to be diving into the subject of Sabbath just a little bit. Um, in partnership with this series as well, I've also been doing these guided prayer reflections that I've been putting out just on our podcast channels. Um, and so I don't know if some of you guys have been listening to that or not, but really it's about sort of carving out 10 to 20 minutes of intentional time with God and just letting God minister to us through the word. So it's not just about, it's not really about reading the scriptures, but it's kind of like letting the scriptures read us. Um, so hopefully that's been, has anyone here been doing this? Okay, there's like one hand. So, and it's been good for you, huh? There you go. Right. A compelling review. <laughs> right. A riveting one that might even, uh, I don't know encourage some of you guys to get amongst it as well. Who knows? Might be two hands next week. Woo, looking forward to it. Um, so this evening, we're going to be diving uh, into this whole idea uh, of the practice of Sabbath. Um, and so why? Because in our anxiety-driven, busyness-glamorizing, commodity-accumulating and consuming world, I personally believe that the practice of Sabbath is one of the most legitimate things that the church can offer the world. Um, I don't say that lightly. Um, the Sabbath thing is something that I've been thinking about uh, quite significantly over the last Last 18 months, God has had me on a pretty, pretty major journey with it, um, and and I've got to be honest. Like the great irony of like all of it is that is that on the very week that I'm preaching two messages on Sabbath, um, I've just like honestly been smashed trying to like buy a house, and I've just started like university on top of my full time work and on top of work changing, and I'm going through all of these major transitions. And life for me has been busy, and I have been trying to teach on like how we need to try and eliminate some of that busyness from our lives and my Sabbath. Sabbath has been impacted and affected, and yet, uh, so it's just been really messy. But I just know that there's something of the invitation of God in it for us. And one of the things that I see happen so much in sort of church culture is that there's always this sort of pining for the things of yesteryear. And, and my, my deep feeling is that 
is that there is there is a, a need that that our our culture, particularly in the West, is sort of crying out and groaning for like for real legitimate rest. And I feel like a, a recapturing of the idea and the notion of Sabbath is something that if we as the church could grasp and if we could sort of step out of that that same sort of like culture of busyness and cultural anxiety, if we could step out of that and embody rhythms that, that include things like Sabbath, we could be modeling something seriously beautiful to the world around us. Um, and, 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 you know, I would love for the church to become a place like known as being a safe harbor and a place where people could come and find rest, you know, without um, any sort of other major agenda than that. Uh, my sleeves are going to annoy me tonight. I can just tell. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, so I, I just want to say as well uh, that uh, this morning I spoke on Sabbath as well. A very, not the same message, a very different message. Um, I spoke on Sabbath as a form of restoration. And the idea behind that was to sort of look a little bit more at the Genesis narrative um, or, or in particular our sense of identity and our purpose being found in God in relation to the Genesis creation story. Um, and this evening I want to talk about Sabbath uh, as resistance, uh, which is really more of an appeal to what I call the mosaic self. So looking at the ex- Exodus story, which in other words is our sense of how we relate to what happens in the world around us. So it's two different things. And so there's actually so much sort of theology and deep thinking behind Sabbath that sort of come out of thousands of years, not just of the Christian tradition, but the Jewish tradition as well. And there's so much stuff. I would have loved to have done a whole series on Sabbath, but two two sermons, I'm trying my best to do like some kind of justice to it. Um, but I want to I want to encourage you, would you be willing this week to just maybe even go listen to my sermon from this morning? Um, because uh, it's 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 the same idea, but it's just looking at the gym from a different angle, um, and and really looking to capture that sense of of you know uh, restoration, um, so that we might reconnect uh, with our our sense of identity and our purpose being in God. Right. So with that in mind, what is Sabbath? Uh, Sabbath is a weekly rhythm uh, arising out of the Jewish tradition of reserving one day of the week for intentional observance. Okay, and the observance of Sabbath meant to refrain from any and all work. So anything that was about producing or about creating, um, it was that was kind of laid to rest. You would abstain from that completely. I'm not going to do any work for the day. So observance was the first part of Sabbath, and the second part of Sabbath was to embody uh, an idea of remembrance. So that that you would remember who God is and what God's doing and, and, what, and what he's looking to unfold in the world. And so observance and remembrance are the two sort of main pillars of Sabbath. Uh, traditionally, uh, it normally starts on like a Friday night. So in the Jewish tradition, on a Friday night, just a couple minutes before uh, sunset, you would light two candles, one for observance, one for remembrance. You would say a little prayer. You would eat together with your family. Um, and then uh, Sabbath would finish the following night, right around about 6 p.m. on the Saturday. And so that's sort of practically uh, what it traditionally looks like. Um, where does Sabbath come from? Uh, we see it sort of we see it sort of established within the list of the Ten Commandments. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I'm just going to fire through uh, Exodus 20, uh, which is where we see God uh, present the Ten Commandments for the first time. And I'm just going to fire through. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to show you where all these things. Uh, in verse uh, 3, God says this, You shall have no other gods before me. Um, so God establishes himself as the sort of like, you know, I, like I am the one that's supposed to be in front. He establishes, establishes himself as the monotheistic God. Uh, in verse 4, you shall, make, you shall make for yourself 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image, meaning you are not to make any idols or representations of God. Why is that? Well, it's actually because humanity are designed to be the image bearers of God. So if you make a stone sculpture or a wood sculpture or a clay sculpture and you say that's God, you're actually diminishing your humanity and the call that God's put on your life. So God says you are not to make an image bearer. You are to just worship me. Uh, And then going through into verse 7, you shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. Moving through into uh, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. From there, things switch a little bit, and we go uh, through to verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to him. And so the Ten Commandments are set up in a very particular way, and I just want to kind of unpack that a little bit so we understand it a little bit more. It starts off with three commandments that relate almost exclusively to God, um, or that, that do relate exclusively to God. Um, so do not make do not make uh, false images. Do not worship other gods, um, and uh, do not use the Lord's name in vain. So, so there's these ideas of how we relate to God in order that we might understand who we are in relation to God. And so even this morning's sermon almost ties in, almost focuses a little bit exclusively on those first three sermons, uh, those first three ideas. Um, in the second part, the last, so the last six, we see, uh, we see a bunch of commandments relating almost exclusively to how you treat other people. So do not murder them, honor your parents, um, do not covet what, you, what other people around you have. So there's this very sort of like, this is how you engage with the world around you. What's interesting is that the fourth commandment, which is to keep the Sabbath day holy, uh, is that it is the only spiritual discipline that is commanded. Not prayer, not fasting, not worship, not serving other people, like none of those things. It's like the only spiritual discipline that is commanded is to keep the Sabbath day holy. And it almost serves as something of like a bridge, right, between those first three about God and those last six about how we relate to others. It's, it's, a, it's something, something kind of connects it. And in the observance of Sabbath, there's something that connects you to the reality of, of like knowing who God is. And there's something about observing Sabbath and keeping it holy that connects you to how you live with and engage with other people. It's got a very particular function. Um, I just want to go back into that Exodus 20 a little bit and just look uh, from verses 8 through to 11, just what it says about the Sabbath. So remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the foreigner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here is what we see coming through in the Sabbath text. Um, Oh, I've completely lost my little quote there. The divine rest on the seventh day of creation has made clear that A, Yahweh is not a workaholic, that B, Yahweh is not anxious about the full functioning of creation, and C, that the well-being of creation does not depend on endless work. Right. So this God, this creator God, he's not a workaholic. He's not anxious about making sure that creation is always doing, always producing, um, and he's not, and he's 
and, he, and that this God doesn't see the well-being of creation as needing to depend on work that is non-stop. And so there is this invitation of God through these commandments to, to step into and participate in the same rhythm that he does. There's this establishment that this God is a God of rest, and I want you to rest like me and learn from me so that you may be healthy image bearers. That is what is coming through in these commandments and in the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, here's the question. What is the context of God establishing these commandments? The context is Egypt. The context is the Exodus. The reason these commandments exist is they were for a group of people who had been existing in slavery for 400 years. For 400 years, they had worked day and night for seven days a week. For 400 years, they were told what to produce and how much of it to produce. If they did not meet those requirements, they were punished and in some cases killed. It was a rough existence. For 400 years, this has been the narrative of a people group, of the Hebrew people. All of their worth is in what they produce, and there's nothing else to it. Egypt, at the time, was the economic and military superpower of its day. So there were no other empires that were as glamorous, as successful, as powerful. Um, <clears throat> Egypt was the standard bearer. And the pharaoh himself was completely obsessed with maintaining a particular image. And so the pharaoh wanted to accumulate. He wanted to accumulate land. He wanted to accumulate wealth. He wanted to uh, <clears throat> accumulate just a sense of, of sovereignty and power over as many people as possible. This pharaoh was obsessed with the amassing of wealth and the productivity of his nation. He wanted to build and have people basically enter the lands of Egypt and go, wow, Egypt is pretty successful. There was this obsession that the pharaoh was about. He wanted to be perceived a certain way by the world around him. And so it's really interesting when you look at this Exodus story, and particularly in the early parts of it, it's really impossible to imagine that in the system of Pharaoh, there could ever be any kind of restfulness for anyone. I want to read to you from Exodus 5 verses 4 to 19, just to give you a sense um, of, of just how harsh this dude was. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you're stopping them from working. That same day, the Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? 
Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. And so the Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you're not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. It's like, it's exhausting just reading that. There's no space for rest. There's no acknowledge of the humanity of these people. There's no respect uh, or opportunity for them to live autonomously, to even participate in their own, in their own religion. It's just you have one thing. You are to produce bricks. And actually, what the way you were doing it before, it's not good enough. So now we're changing it up on you again. It's this like, it's this like obsessive need to produce more so that the Pharaoh can look a certain way to the world around him. So he can look powerful. So that he can look wealthy. I learned something interesting just in today with a conversation uh, with someone after our morning service where they were saying, you know, uh, in, in the sort of like records of history, some of the earliest signs we have of, of accounting is, is with these like Egyptian tablets because what would happen is not with slaves, obviously, but for some people they would pay them and they would pay them in beer. And there's some sort of like, they've found some sort of tablets that are where people have been trying to figure out how much stuff they get out of paying paying people particular amounts of beer, right? So they're trying to calculate what was like the, the optimum rate of like marginal utility effectively. You know, there are things like that that exist from 5,000 years ago. It's like really interesting. It's like the culture itself. There was something about the Egyptian economic system that was wired for productivity and the optimization and the glamorization of productivity. Deeply fascinating. But this is the soup that the Hebrew people were cooking in for 400 years. And when you're in that for 400 years, even if you have some sort of belief about who you are in God, there is a narrative that begins to sort of bake itself into you, hardwire itself into you. Um, and so it begins to shape and change what you believe about yourself. And it's hard to believe anything else. And I think even you can just sort of see that in your own lives. It's like how easily do we often sort of negative self-talk ourselves, Right? We sort of say these like horrible things about myself. I know for me it happens when I'm playing FIFA, right? And I lose like a few games in a row and it's just like, I'm just like, Calvin, you suck at life, you know? It's like, oh, this negative self-talk just like invades my life just from a freaking video game. But it's like we're so susceptible to like to believing those things and, and sort of adopting those narratives and sort of bringing them into ourselves. And so you see why it's important when you understand that this is the soup the Hebrew people had been cooking in for 400 years, generation on generation. You see why it is important for God to reclaim and redefine the narrative. It's important for God to be able to say, you are my people. You are my image bearers. You are a light unto the world. And this is what I would like that to look like. You are going to be set apart and you're going to change things. But one of the first things you need to do is you need to realize because you are my image bearers, you must, model, you must model a particular kind of life. And one of the things that you do 
um, in order to do that is to keep the Sabbath day holy, to embrace rest, to love rest, and to, to recognize that you are, you are not what you do. That is not what defines you. But you are worth, worthy because you are in me and because you are my image bearers. That is why God has to establish this commandment system and the bridging thing in all of it is to establish the Sabbath day as being a holy one. This is what God does through the establishment of the Ten Commandments. But here's the thing, right? Is that for us... I think we can see that there is an, an Egypt narrative that continues to permeate through all of our culture, right? And because we've spoken about it a few times before, but there is a continued push for us to be uh, all about productivity. We've spoken already in the previous weeks about our glamorization of busyness, about how um, we tend to, like when we show up at a party, what's the first thing you say to someone you meet? What do you do? What do you do? Tell me what you do between 9 and 5 or like 9 and 10 or, you know. It's like, what do we do? Like our, our identities are so tied to like simply our output, our, our productive capacity. Um, we live in a world where, uh, I was just sort of mentioning very briefly this morning, but like in the sort of publicly traded sector where companies have to report to their shareholders, they live quarter to quarter. So every, every three months, they have to produce a report that says to their shareholders, hey, uh, we've earned more money than the last quarter. And this is what we've done. And often it's, it's to try and like squeeze profit margins by like reducing wages over here or diminishing people's experience of life over this side. Or it's like we've increased advertising and so we're getting people to spend more so we're actually making them believe that owning our product will enhance their life in some way, shape or capacity. It's like, you know, there's this, there's this pressure to like, we have to keep producing greater and greater and greater profit margins all to the detriment of, uh, you know, uh, a, a limited resource that is our planet. You guys are like very quiet this evening, right? It's grim, right? Is that what this is? Okay, anyway. <clears throat> so you can see how the Egypt narrative, this glamorization of busyness and of productivity, permeates through our current culture as well. This is something we deal with. It's something that more often than not we end up participating in simply because we are part of the West. You know, who of us isn't susceptible to like going, I think if I had that thing, that would make me happy, you know? It's like, man, do we really need that like that bigger thing or that newer thing or that shiny thing? It's like, maybe we don't, but, but we, we find ourselves participating in that system all the time. And so because that Egypt narrative is still one that sort of tends to be around us as well, we can see that the need for Sabbath is something we need to be thinking about also. Sabbath is not something that just exists sort of out there uh, or, or sort of in the olden days or whatever. Sabbath is something that God has called his divine image bearers to embody because it, it models something to the world around us. Sabbath is something we should be thinking about. And so my sort of hard question for this evening is like, like, what does Sabbath look like for you? What does Sabbath mean for you? And actually, you know, my challenge is like, is like, this is something we should all be thinking about. Because it's actually not good that we just kind of get on the hamster wheel in the same way that everyone else does. It's like, man, we've, we've got to be challenging ourselves a little bit. We've got to think about what this rest looks like. 
So practically, what, is, uh, what does Sabbath look like? Oh, you're, you're tracking with me well. Well, a few things I want to say about it. The first is that, is that I think Sabbath is, is at its best when we're able to intentionally focus on being present to now. So when we're able to be present, we're beginning to practice Sabbath a little bit. Now, what's really interesting is when you, if we just speak very basically about anxiety and depression, depression um, and very simple thing, and I'm not meaning to like diminish it at all, but depression is often a, a past-oriented or a retrospective type fear, um, and anxiety is a future-oriented type fear. And so there's the sense where it's like we end up getting like really depressed about the story that's gone on behind us, or we become anxious about not having control of things in the future, Right? And so there's this sense like we get so caught up in what was and what could be or what might be or what isn't going to happen. or We get so caught up in all that stuff that we begin to lose sight of now. So one of the things that Sabbath does is once a week, you, you, you stop what you're doing. You stay life right now. What have I got? I've got a stable income. I've got people who love me. I have a roof over my head. I have, I have access to food and drink. I've got a car that gets me from A to B. You know, so it's just this thing of like becoming present. And when you begin to sort of hard bake that into your, week, into your life week after week, you begin to see some, some really, uh, really powerful benefits. So Sabbath has to be some sort of intentional focus on being present to now. It's also, it also brings us into like an intentional focus on gratitude. So whatever Sabbath is, is that it, 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 has to be, it has to be grateful. So it's not just that you list those things, but you go, oh man, I'm really, I'm really grateful for that. I'm really thankful for the friends or for my spouse um, uh, or for the job I have or for the fact that I've got a car that gets me from A to B. It's like, I'm really grateful. I'm just really grateful and dare I even say blessed to have these things in my life. And then what's really interesting is that out of that, we get an unintentional movement towards generosity. So while the first two are intentional, okay, I'm going to be intentionally present, and I'm going to be intentionally grateful, an unintentional generosity begins to sort of grow and well up from within. What's fascinating about that is that when we practice the fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath day holy, all the last six uh, commandments begin to become second nature. They become an extension of generosity. In particular, that 10th commandment, right, which is about coveting, it's like those things begin to fall away as we become more oriented towards sharing ourselves with the other, right? But that only comes out of this like intentional practice. Sabbath, the intentional practice of Sabbath begins to foster an unintentional but very natural sense of generosity in our lives. And I think that is a beautiful thing. <coughs> and so when we practice those things, our life begins to look somewhat a little bit different. We suddenly begin to slow down. We become more aware of who we are in God. Um, we become more aware of, of how we can use, use the things we have, or, or we become more aware of how we, we function within the world around us. And then Sabbath begins to say something about us to the world around us. Sabbath says that I resist the idea that my worth is in what I do. So Sabbath then becomes a form of resistance. It's like, no, actually, it's like, yeah, I'll tell you what I do at a party, but, but I also want to tell you about the things that really excite me. 
and the kinds of things I'm about um, and the kinds of things that I would love to spend my time doing outside of just the nine to five. Uh, Walter Brueggemann says, The such faithful practice of work stoppage is an act of resistance. It declares in bodily ways that we will not participate in the anxiety system that pervades our social environment. And so Sabbath says, I resist the idea that my worth is in what I do. Sabbath also says that I resist the idea that my worth is in what I have. So the Egyptian system, like we see in Pharaoh, is that I must have more, I need more, I need to have as much, much land as possible, as much wealth as possible, as many things as possible. And so Sabbath says, actually, I resist that. What I have is enough. That actually my worth isn't even in those things, like they're nice things to have, but, but my worth is in God. So it's like, it's like they resist the idea that the worth is in what, my worth is in what I have, my material position. And then finally, Sabbath says that I resist the idea that my worth is in how others perceive me. And so that whole thing is so much of the Egyptian system, so much of that was about how the Pharaoh wanted to be perceived, about how the rest of the world was to look at Egypt. There was a fear that Egypt might be, might be perceived as being weak or unwealthy or something. And so it's like, no, I have to show how big and successful and powerful we are. So it's like, we, we too are so susceptible to those things. It's like, we worry so much about what other people think of us. But actually, in the practice of Sabbath, there's a resistance that says, I resist the idea that my worth is in how other people perceive me. I resist that idea. Walter Brueggemann, uh, who... I just, he's just one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, says, Sabbath is the practical ground for breaking the power of acquisitiveness and for creating a public will for an accent on restraint. Sabbath is the cessation of widely shared practices of acquisitiveness. It provides time, space, energy, and imagination for coming to the ultimate recognition that more commodities, which may be acquired in the rough and ready of daily uh, economics, finally do not satisfy. So everything we acquire, everything we do, the way people think about the things we have, all that kind of stuff, it comes to naught when we begin to practice Sabbath. And we go, actually, yes, I have these things. It's just part of life, but, and I enjoy them, but... It's not where my worth is. And finally, Sabbath says this. Ah, oh, my thing just broke. There you go. Ah, oh, look at that. Finally, Sabbath says this. I embrace the truth that my worth is found in God and His story. I embrace that truth as my reality. So the practice of Sabbath resists the idea that our worth is found in the things we do or the things we have or how others perceive us. But Sabbath also says, I embrace the truth that my worth is found in, in God and his story and the fact that I'm a divine image bearer and the fact that I'm not designed to just work and produce and have and consume and accumulate. No, my worth is in like being present to people around me, to the ones I love. My, my worth is found around a dinner table eating food and like laughing Drinking good drink, you know, like it's my worth is found in the deep conversations that I get to have with people. My worth is found in, in delighting in and celebrating the good things in life. Sabbath itself is an arena in which we recognize that we live by gift and not by possession, right? That we are satisfied by relationships 
and not by amassing commodities. We see in the scriptures it says things like, we may indeed gain the whole world and lose our souls. So Sabbath is a soul receiving when we are in a posture of, of receptivity before our Father who knows we need them. It's like we, we come before God and we just say, this space, this thing is good. This is, what, this is what I need. This is where my worth is found. It's a recognition that our lives themselves and the things that are happening in them are a gift. And that is a good thing. And that brings us quite nicely to communion. Because communion itself is also a gift. Communion itself is also a means of practicing gratitude. Communion itself is just the Eucharist. It just means thanks. You know, it's just a way of giving thanks to God. It's a way of being present to the story. It's a way of reconnecting with the story. It's a way of resisting the ideas that our worth is found in like all these other things. No, communion is just this lovely little Sabbath moment where we get to be fully present to the things at hand. We get to be fully grateful and we get to trust that it opens new things and moves us in new ways towards the rest of the world and towards the things that we do. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.